We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. Okay, look, we both said a lot of things that you're going to regret. But I think we can put our differences behind us. For science, you monster. Spoiler warning for all Life is Strange games. And a further disclaimer, Derek and Ani are the worst kind of casual SJW cucks. Kia ora comrades and happy pride on the 51st anniversary of the Stonewall Riot. Remembering Stonewall, we remember that riots can change the world. Welcome to Where's My Jetpack, a politics and pop culture podcast with sci-fi and socialist leanings. I'm Ani White, sitting next to my tantalizingly present co-host, Derek Johnson. Well, so much for physical distancing. This month, we're both more and less physically isolated than usual. Usually, we call in from Florida and Melbourne, but this month, we're broadcasting from the same place for once, Dire Station. No Fate Project HQ in Antarctica, the most sparsely populated continent on Earth. So we're together, but in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. Named after the best way of passing time out here. We will explain how we got here, but before that, Ani will review the very gay video game series, Life is Strange, and before that, we're bringing you Rex. My first rec is Jim Sterling's YouTube channel, particularly the Jimquisition series on the gaming industry. His divisive persona is a campy pansexual blowhard, busting the balls of various deserving game industry targets from his literal podium in a range of frankly very attractive steampunky red and black suits. Even though I may be the greatest showman in games media, I'm little more than a knobhead customer like the rest of you. I'm just dressed magnificently. He also has an incredible theme tune, which we won't play here for copyright reasons, which is a shame. Increasingly, he's one of the main sources on the corporate abuses of the gaming industry, including both exploitative labor practices like crunch and commodification on the user side, particularly the growth of psychologically manipulative and addictive microtransactions. Let's face it though, I am objectively correct. Fuck the elite. He plays an essential role in games journalism, ruthlessly exposing practices many bigger outlets still pull punches on. Thank God for me. Thank Thank God God for him. him. So what are your recs? My first is Eurogamer, the largest independent gaming website in Europe. They have some fairly critical content, including pieces supporting unionization of the industry, criticizing the microtransaction economy, and approvingly citing Jim Sterling's work. But it's the YouTube channel that has my wrapped daily attention, and that is more light entertainment. It's largely Let's Plays and List Pieces, recently leaning toward more streams and their physical distancing. The channel has 600,000 followers and it's associated with EGX, the UK's biggest gaming convention. So based on that, you might think it was one of the most popular GamerTube channels. But Eurogamer actually has less than 1% of the followers of PewDiePie, a masturbating Nazi child with over 100 million followers. Basically, GamerTube is huge and it's also a hive of scum and villainy. 
So for us, Bleeding Hearts, it helps to know what the friendlier channels are. The hosts have actual jokes rather than just shouting and edgy racism. Although softer than Jimquisition or, or even than its own parent site, the Eurogamer channel does lean liberal and bisexual. For example, they recently used a stream to raise $28,000 for the NAACP. My first Eurogamer binge was the lovely Life is Strange Let's Play, in which co-hosts Johnny Chiadini and Aoife Wilson provide an endlessly entertaining and thoughtful commentary on the story. Sadly, Johnny has since headed over to tabletop gaming channel Dicebreaker, but he saw the Life is Strange Let's Plays through to the end of December last year. He's been replaced by goth RPGer Zoe and dad jokey VR enthusiast Ian, who recently did the brilliant and terrifying alien isolation on VR. Fuck that. It's scary enough on PC. So, for GamerCube content, if you want critical analysis of the industry, go to Jim Sterling, like Derek says. And if you want lighter Let's Plays, I'd recommend going to Eurogamer. My second rec is the game The Stanley Parable. This is an indie game by devs William Pugh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, P-U-G-H, and Davey Reader. It was first released as a Half-Life 2 mod in 2011. Then after the popularity of the mod, it was released as a standalone remake in 2013. Although straightforward to play, it's essentially a walking simulator, Stanley Parable has 19 possible endings. Without spoiling too much, it's a very funny parody and deconstruction of narrative paths and games. It's hard to ever look at your favourite games the same way again after the Stanley Parable you kind of realise how much the games are railroading you. The devs went their separate ways after Stanley Parable but each kind of made their own interesting thematic sequel. So Reden's The Beginner's Guide and Pew's Dr. Langeskov, The Tiger and the Terribly Cursed Emerald Whirlwind Heist respectively. It's kind of a nicely long name. But each of those deconstructs video games in a distinct way with Beginner's Guide taking a fairly bleak psychological approach and Dr. Langeskov running with the Pomo comedic approach of the first game. We'll link all three games in the description but I'd say try Stanley Parable. Then if that worked for you, try the other two. Derek? Oh, that sounds interesting. It is. The other rec is the indie game Tonight We Riot which is created by the developers of the Pixel Pushers Union 512. Their publisher is Means Interactive and it says quote, in a dystopia where where wealthy capitalists control elections, media, and the lives of the working class. We're faced with two choices, accept it or fight for something better. Tonight We Riot doesn't have just one hero. Instead, you play as a movement of people whose well-being is determined by the success of your revolution. And you gotta be careful to keep everybody alive and keep moving forward. It's uh, very much a throwback and an homage to classic side-scrolling platform games. I would say games not unlike Final Fight and Streets of Rage and all these types of games where you're just fighting relentlessly, endless waves of enemies coming at you as you move forward. And this one is like the pixels and everything are very simplified and the music is very... Uh, 
bunch of throwback and sounds like it's done on MIDI. It's very fun. You know, you have like riot cops coming at you. You have drones and big robots and rocket-powered hands that come at you, which I guess are a reference to visible hand to capitalism or something. If you want to have a really good time and, and just eat some popcorn and watch, uh, you can go over to the Steam message boards of people reviewing the game and people commenting on it, and the people who are attacking the game from the right and attacking, oh, this game is communist, and oh, why are these communists charging money on a game, you know, and it is just hilarious. I mean, it's just like sitting in on its like Mystery Science Theater 3000 message board. It's uh, fucking hilarious how stupid the critics are. I want to in mind that America has been in uh, massive upheaval and riots. I want to bring up a clip from public intellectual Cornell West when he was on Democracy Now! on the nationwide uprisings over the murder of George Floyd and other victims of police brutality, which he makes the argument, and I don't see how you could disagree, that these are a sign of the U.S. empire imploding. Well, there's no doubt that uh, this is America's moment of reckoning, but we want to make the connection between the local and the global, because you see, when you sow the seeds of greed, domestically, inequality, globally, imperial tentacles, 800 military units abroad, violence in Africa and Africa, supporting various regimes, dictatorial ones in Asia and so forth. There is a connection between the seeds that you sow of violence externally and internally. Same is true in terms of the seed of hatred, of white supremacy, hating black people, anti-blackness, hatred having its own dynamic within the context of a predatory capitalist civilization obsessed with money, 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 domination of workers, marginalization of those who don't fit, gay brothers, lesbian sisters, trans, and so forth. So it's precisely this convergence that my dear sister Professor Taylor is talking about of the ways in which the American empire imploding, its foundations being shaken with uprisings from below. The catalyst was certainly Brother George's Floyd public lynching, but the, the failures of the predatory capitalist economy to provide the satisfaction of the basic needs of food and health care and quality education, jobs with a decent wage. At the same time, the collapse of your political class, the collapse of your professional class, their legitimacy has been radically called into question, and that's multiracial. It's the neo-fascist dimension in Trump. It's the neoliberal dimension in Biden and Obama and the Clintons and so forth. And it includes much of the media. It includes much, many of the professors in universities. The young people are saying, you all have been hypocritical. You haven't been concerned about our suffering, our misery, and we no longer believe in your legitimacy. And it spills over into violent explosion. It's got to be channeled through organizations rooted in a quest for truth and justice. For your meat space, Rex, remember we're not really out of the woods on COVID-19 until we get a vaccine. 
Keep washing your hands, get an N95 mask, and find some friends to smash capitalism with. Conveniently, the mask doubles as a security measure. On that note, just a bit of Asia-Pacific news before the main segment. A rank-and-file campaign in the Australian NTU successfully forced the official MISH leadership to drop a national framework that would have introduced wage cuts in response to the crisis. Most of their organising has been online, although there was a national day of action with distancing and masks, and now industrial action is being discussed. It's inspiring to see the nationwide growth of member organising, independent of official channels, and hopefully this is a sign of things to come. The year is 20. The world is in the throes of global capitalism. Workers everywhere toil daily for a pittance. Many work multiple jobs just to make ends meet. No matter how hard they work, it'll never be enough to be free. For those who do not own the means of production will never know real freedom. But all of that is about to change. Tonight. Pop culture retrospective, Ani is reviewing the Life is Strange games, focusing on choices and consequences. Again, this will contain heavy spoilers, particularly for the first and last games. So there are three main games in the series, the original Life is Strange, prequel Life is Strange Before the Storm, and last year's Life is Strange 2. A lot of people mix up the prequel and sequel, so try to remember the prequel is Before the Storm, and the sequel is straightforwardly named Life is Strange 2. I tried to choose my favourite, but honestly they're kind of all my fave. Games have the potential to be the art form of the 21st century. As Hollywood, uh, you so you can hear that music, right? Hold, hold on, is Bob over there playing the music loud again? Yeah, that's Dr. Bob at it again. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, we've got to ask him several times now. It's a bit awkward recording on Dire Station. There's always something going on. You know, it's not quite like recording at home, but you know, needs must. On terms of Life is Strange, I think games have the potential to be the art form of the 21st century as Hollywood cinema continues its decades-long degeneration into self-cannibalism. But contrary to some of the medium's most ardent defenders, criticism is essential to art rather than stifling art. So in that vein, I'll be analysing not just the mechanics, the gamey aspects that make it distinct from, say, film or literature, but also the themes and politics. It's 
probably pretty uncontroversial that Life is Strange is political because that term is largely used to brand left or progressive politics. But it's probably worth noting the bigger, more straightforward games are also political because storytelling in general always says something about life, intentionally or otherwise. It might say imperialist violence is cool and fun, for example. But thematic analysis of games has expanded on platforms like YouTube, while traditional games journalism has tended to focus more on the mechanics and technical aspects of games. Oh, fucking Okay, uh, the mechanics of Life is Strange is descended from point-and-click adventure games, although more cinematic in the vein of Back to the Future and The Walking Dead series. As Kotaku's Kirk Hamilton put it, Telltale's style of games could be termed difficult decision simulators, with gameplay often centering on ethically charged choices. The Telltale Walking Dead games pay off about as good as uh, Life is Strange and are as emotional to the point of being better than the show actually. Telltale went out of business but don't feel sorry for them. Sterling exposed the amount of crunch the publisher was putting on the programmers and they drove their franchises into the ground by not improving on the game mechanics. Basically where they got to a point that if you've played one of their games you've played them all. Season 1 was the first time a video game made me cry in the wall. Dead, and Life is Strange is all about the feels. Yeah, just on that note, I'd say Dear Esther is the first video game that made me cry, and that's a straight walking simulator, so there's really, it's a very straight down the line narrative, but it's, it's pretty tragic. In terms of the mechanics, I mean, Life is Strange has been criticised for not sufficiently utilising choice mechanics, but I'll be arguing that actually the series improved, particularly by the end of Life is Strange 2, there was a, a high degree of complexity. In terms of Walking Dead, I haven't played those games, but others have said that Life is Strange did choice mechanics better, at least until the season one climax. Another term for this subgenre is interactive drama. That captures the appeal pretty accurately. So Life is Strange uses choice mechanics for a sophisticated exploration of ethics and relationships. Max, start from the beginning. Life is Strange, the first game, was developed by indie developer Don't Nod, written by Christian Devine and Jean-Luc Cano, and released by Square Enix in five episodes over 2015. It was pretty commercially successful for an indie game, albeit one distributed by AAA Publisher. It also won various awards, including Golden Joystick's Performance of the Year for Ashley Birch as Chloe, a BAFTA for Best Story and Game of the Year from Games for Change, an organisation dedicated to using games for social change. In some ways the first game is a mixed bag. On a technical level the main things that work are the beautiful cinematography and the time travel mechanic, yet other elements are pretty jarring like colour awkward teen dialogue written by adult French men for American teen girls, technical issues like dodgy facial animations, and some overly convenient plotting. The Arcadia Bays podcast accurately said that it kind of does everything it tries a bit wrong, yet it still somehow works and draws you in. 
Bob is being very hella annoying. He is, yes, he is hella annoying. But really, it's the character-driven story that made this a beloved game. Should I complain again, or what do you think? I'll, I'll go do it. Hold on. How'd that go? Well, I I went over there. I knocked on his I knocked on his door and told him to sh shut the fuck up. And if you lower the music, and uh, he threw some used condom wrappers at me. But I think the music's lower now. Aren't condoms kind of a valuable commodity down here? Well, I guess they are. I guess wrappers. I guess he was rubbing our face in the fact that he has condom wrappers. At least he didn't throw used condoms at me. Just the wrappers. That's true. Kind of being pinned between Don Levy on one side, sort of plotting to take over the world, and Bob on the other, slacking off, masturbating, and listening to music. I don't know. Dr. Kia yeah, seems okay. Yeah. Dr. Kia seems pretty onto it. Um, yeah. So, I don't know, maybe we can ally with him. But, okay, should we should we get back to the podcast? So... Yeah, and again, hopefully uh, that music will go down and we can avoid any scheming with Don Levy. In terms of Life is Strange, really it's the character-driven story that made this a beloved game. The player character is Max Caulfield, portrayed by Hannah Tell. And by the way, look her up. She couldn't look any more different than Max, despite a pitch-perfect vocal performance. Max is a high school girl who discovers she has time travel powers, able to rewind time over short periods and make choices again. Much of the game focuses on her relationship with Chloe Price, a childhood friend who she had grown apart from, before the events of the game throw them back together. Detractors complained that Max's powers are never really explained, but my impression is that they manifest out of a desire to save Chloe. So this is less hard sci-fi than character-driven magical realism. You spend most of the game repeatedly saving Chloe's life with your rewind powers, as well as falling in love with her. You do also have an option of pursuing a relationship with pushy nerd boy Warren, but that is the incorrect choice in a game featuring Chloe. But why the hate, yo? I mean, I feel like Warren is Rose from Star Wars. Rose never stalked Finn. If you look it up on YouTube, there's evidence Warren's literally stalking Max. Uh, he's a pretty normal teenage nerd boy, but teenage boys are grody. I think it partly depends how you play it. So if you keep turning him down, he keeps pushing. Whereas if you're friendly towards him, or even show romantic interest, then his continued pursuit seems a bit less dodgy and pushy. And from the online discussion, there's obviously people who find him pushy, but the most interesting aspect to me is the men who admit their hatred is about seeing themselves in him. On the Eurogamer Let's Play, Johnny outright says he was like Warren as a teen and that he was the worst. And I think that's one thing that's nice about the Life is Strange series is that you have teenagers just being dicks and being a Annoying. That was a very New Zealand pronunciation of the word dicks. But, you know, they're not these hyper-precocious Buffyverse teens who are constantly referencing pop culture and psychoanalyzing themselves and perfectly articulate. 
Well, a little bit. And a little bit. Okay, there, it, is re, it is very referential as a game as a whole. But my point is, they're annoying teenagers, and teenagers are annoying. And I think it captures that. In terms of romantic partners for Max, I'm Team Chloe for sure. How about you? Are you still Team Chloe? Yeah. Even with your defensive Warren? Well, not so much defensive Warren, except for not hating him so much. But yeah, I... Fair enough on Warren. I mean, as I say, if you're negative towards him, then you see him keep pushing. So that makes him seem a lot worse, you know, compared to if you're positive towards him. And that's one of the interesting things about these games is you do, you really can explore relationships in all sorts of ways. And you see how people react to, you know, different ways that you behave. Similar stuff with Victoria, where you can see different sides to her depending how you interact with her. But Chloe is is a definitive creation. And some ways I think Chloe is more definitive than Max in terms of the way the game impacted on people. She's a kind of volatile punk brought to life by award-winning voice actress Ashley Birch. She's initially very prickly in a teenage way, so you sort of feel bad for her mum, but you learn about the grief and the trauma as well that led her to develop those defense mechanisms. Still felt bad for her mum, but sort of understood. Oh, her stepdad's a dick. Oh yeah, stepdad's a dick. But even then, you know, you learn about what's going on with the stepdad as well, and as much as I still think a lot of what he does is completely unacceptable, he does become a more fleshed out and understandable character. So that's kind of the nature of the series. You have quite a well-developed ensemble, and people aren't always what they seem. You know, your first judgment on characters. Yeah, people are complicated. They There's reasons why they do what they do. We may not necessarily agree with why they do what they do but we understand and i think that's very mature and sophisticated writing yeah i I agree and along with negotiating various kind of teen relationships the main plot is you're investigating the twin peaks-esque mystery of a missing girl yeah my theory tends to be that that missing girl's ghost is probably driving a lot of what's happening in the town and Max's abilities, but it's so it's left up in the air so so much that, you know, who knows what's going on? There's a lot of ambiguity. In the prequel game, there's a possibility that she, uh, Rachel, has some kind of firepower, except that's never really made clear if it's a, a superpower or if it's uh, just a more of a thematic thing. There's a lot of ambiguity around the kind of mechanics of it, which has led a lot of more kind of sci-fi orientated or mechanics orientated fans to be frustrated and say it doesn't explain things, where I think they're kind of not really getting what the game is doing, which is that it's it's sort of a magical realist story, and it's really a lot more about the characters than it is about the superpowers or plausible science or anything. Well, yeah, I imagine, like, for the sequel for Part 2, I guess it comes across more, again, like with Max, as more of a superpower, but I think when you think about it, a lot of these characters do have quote-unquote superpowers in a fantasy kind of way, rather than a science fiction kind of way. Yeah, it's definitely fantasy-ish, but even then, compare it to something like Full Metal Alchemist, which did quite well, I think, at setting up alchemy as a pseudoscience, which had its own kind of rules, and the narrative kind of... Uh, 
was more internal consistency yeah yeah yeah. and it was more kind of plotty even though there was character and thematic stuff there was more of a sense of wanting the plot to be resolved on its own terms whereas i think if you're looking for that in life is strange you are going to be frustrated it's not about plot it's a it's a very character driven story so you're going to be more satisfied if that's what you're looking for yeah it's definitely the difference between character driven and plot driven and i think that's definitely the strength here some games like two souls tried to do something like this but in a more cinematic way i think i did the hard rain and all these games detroit and all these who sterling tends to pick on a lot and for his high-mindedness and his hoity-toitiness thinking he's such a great auteur making these games that game which actually starred ellen page even though ellen page's image was stolen for the last of us which is very emotionally hard to play game too it's intense yeah. I just started that one and wow, it's hard. Yeah, that's definitely Ellen Page and she could totally sew. But anyway, like I was saying, uh, the difference between a game like this and uh, Two Souls is Two Souls ended up being more plot driven in a way that it kind of felt like you were just on rails, you know? This game feels like both you are making all these decisions that are driving character decisions and the character arcs and the characters driving the story. Therefore, the story plays out in all these different ways. And it's obviously the modern-day equivalent of those old choose-your-own-adventures books that they had when I was a kid. I think this is the way that games can do something interactive in a way that tells stories very well that movies just cannot do. I think the Dark Mirror episode... Yeah, yeah, Black Mirror Bandersnatch. That was used very well. Yeah, but that's essentially a game. Yes, it's like action but there are live action games and the fact that it's part of a tv series is sure people think of it as tv or as you know streaming television but it's essentially a game and i think charlie brooker is quite into games i actually have a feeling that it might have been influenced by life is strange among many other games but there's a few elements of it that i felt like might have had a life is strange influence which again is the snake eating its tail because there are so many blatant references to twin peaks including obviously fire walk with me even being written on a mirror nathan's doctor is dr jacoby a number plate name drops the show in the first episode it was uh chloe's truck's license plate Uh, along with the drug dealers rv which uh names drops breaking bad appropriately enough Okay, that's right. All of the cars have name dropped TV series, I think maybe some movies, except for some reason for Nathan's, which says Sex Offender. So you've got all these classy pop culture references, and then Nathan just has Sex Offender. And it's like, <laughs> really, Nathan? You know, you really brought this down. You kind of wrecked everything of it here. But, you know, that is Nathan for you. <laughs> Subtle. What's really cool about this game is, you know, it's it's pretty explicitly flagging its influences. And so as a mystery, you know, revealing this dark and underbelly of a small town and its treatment of teenage girls. I mean, you could go all the way back to obviously Twin Peaks and then all the shows that have ripped off tweaks, going from X-Files to uh, recently Riverdale, and also the prequel show or remix show of Bates Motel, based on Psycho. That was, again, in a Pacific Northwest town with all these deep, dark secrets and abusive women and secret drug dealing in the town and everything. Yeah, it is quite common in film and TV, but then it's not necessarily such a common thing in games. So I think it's 
it's interesting as a game it's kind of putting itself more in the tradition of indie cinema or sort of quasi art house cinema david lynch obviously is in a kind of blurry line between art house and hollywood also it feels at times like a kind of twee early noughties indie film it's really flagging those influences but that they come from other media so i think it's in some ways it's very much drawing in an audience who might not play a lot of games but might enjoy indie-ish cinema indie music uh sort of art movies and it does seem like it's cut from that cloth and cut from the cloths of the things that have inspired it i think that it's really well done because you know it could have come off as a really sloppy pastiche that just name dropped everything well i think again the fact that it's so character driven is what makes it work so it doesn't just feel like as you say a pastiche it's a it's a character driven story that is sort of flagging the influences of that character driven story in some ways it's most like donnie darko which is an obvious david lynch riff itself so there you've got the alienated teen with time travel superpowers who must make the ultimate sacrifice and reset the timeline except in your and my playthrough spoilers but also yeah it's kind of donnie darko for lesbians i would also say in the other way that it's like donnie darko it also has a character you wouldn't expect that has a sex dungeon i don't surprise nobody else has picked that up true yeah i was thinking that i rewatched donnie darko recently and that was where i was thinking like this is a lot more like donnie darko than it is like david lynch actually like it's very close sort of spiritually and clearly watched it god rest patrick swayze's soul roadhouse that movie has such a great ensemble as well and i think this is a comparison you know where the donnie darko director's cut which really sucks they explain everything and they explain the time travel superpowers so they have these like intertitles from the philosophy of time travel book which explain all the rules of the movie which you don't want because that's awkward it's supposed to be this kind of ambiguous character-driven dream-like story it should stick to its internal consistency but it shouldn't spell out the rules in universe or on the screen I think it's such a contrast to Life is Strange, which people complain about the opposite thing, but I think Life is Strange is playing to its strengths a lot more. I think they know that they're not telling a hard sci-fi story, and they embrace the fact that it's a character-driven story. Whereas I think Richard Kelly didn't know what he had with Donnie Darko. It's obvious from the director's cut that he doesn't know what people like about his film. He sort of tries to explain it all as a sci-fi story, and nobody who really enjoyed Donnie Darko was watching it for a internally consistent sci-fi story. Yeah, and I think Donnie Darko would be stronger as a movie if he kept the ambiguity of is it about a time loop and all this time travel or is it about mental illness yeah well and the theatrical cut is stronger in that respect it's a lot more ambiguous and it's also very character based and it has a mood and an atmosphere well you see americans do not like ambiguity that's the difference between our cinema and yours ani is that our audiences do not like ambiguity in any way shape or form things need to be clear cut and explained to them and have a twist at the end. And I mean, David Lynch is an example of someone taking a European sensibility into into American cinema. And obviously the Life is Strange writers are also French. So I do think, yeah, there's a, a sort of a European influence here in the kind of storytelling. And definitely in the complication of the characters and how deep they are and well-rounded. You know, I think they could have very easily been very shallow. The characters could have not had any depth or dimension to them and just 
and this character's an asshole, this character's a nerd, this one's a jock. You know, they all had different things around them. Yeah, although I will say one thing Americans have done well is teen drama, so I think that might be a factor in why these sort of French creators, who are obviously also, you know, into a lot of American pop culture, decided to make it, a, you know, a US teen drama. So, I mean, you think of Buffy, it's obviously very much in the vein of something like Buffy, or maybe indirectly Heathers, almost. I would say, like, Smallville even really ripped off that model, as with the original run of Roswell. I mean, all these shows kind of became Twin Peaks, but this. Just like it used to be like a show would be like something, but like with that, you know? Like when everything was Die Hard, you know, Die Hard on a ship, Die Hard on a train, Die Hard on a bus. Yeah. The series is full of so many pop culture Easter eggs, it's hard to keep track of. I think there's a wiki or somebody that's kept track. Most of them, they're from like X-Files to Buffy, and they're both subtle and blatant. And investigating Chloe's house, you can even find the notice of debt from the Clamp Corporation which is obviously an apparent reference to the Trump-esque company in Gremlins 2. And in the same episode, there's an optional scene where you can watch Blade Runner with Chloe, although based on the soundtrack, you can tell it's clearly not Blade Runner. Oh man, is he serious? Is he seriously doing this? Yeah, yeah, it's back. Also, in the prequel, if you read Chloe's journal, you find out she has a crush on Pris from Blade Runner. So that's kind of fun. As well as these external pop culture references, the series also kind of builds its own internal pop culture. So you can pay attention to Hot Dog Man, who shows up in a number of places, and later Power Bear in the sequel. And it kind of uses these intertextual elements to build a world and a mood, like the indie soundtrack setting a wistful tone that kind of stays with you. But again, it's the mood and the characters that really stick with you in this game. Yeah, and it's interesting, all the designs and t-shirts and the graphic design touch on the whole aesthetic of the game. Yeah, obviously, when I say they designed all of the t-shirts, that's obvious because it's a game you have to, but they clearly put a lot of work into the art of designing these t-shirts, which kind of a nicely character based. And I noticed on Community when Abed had a shirt from the show. Yeah, and they're recognizably Life is Strange shirts, so that's pretty awesome. And the friend who first pointed me towards this game is a fellow socially anxious Benzo Popper, which definitely figures because balancing out the emotionally intense story, a trademark mm. feature is optional scenes where you can just sit mm. and take in the world rather than being pushed to always advance the plot. So it's a kind of mindfulness simulator where you'll just sit in the yard, some acoustic music will play, and maybe there'll be some internal narration, maybe not, but you just kind of absorb the environment, which is very unusual for games which have this kind of instrumental rationality a lot of the time, where you're always aiming for a goal, you're building up skills, you're defeating others, even in big open world games, they're very goal-driven, yeah. and then this you can kind of sit without any particular goal and just take the world in and the lead character Max is very awkward she's very obviously anxious and now because of her rewind powers she's able to look at every choice from every angle so it's basically anxiety as a superpower technically you could just make a choice and not look back but the best way to play it is to try out the consequences of the various choices and then decide what kind of Max you're going to be yeah. 
and you think of not just what happens when you make one of three choices but then also how that will affect all of these people and how that's then going to affect you so as I say it's a very anxious dynamic it doesn't feel that way to me while I'm playing it I enjoy the game it doesn't make me feel anxious but within the mechanics there's a character based aspect that Max is a person who's always thinking through her relationships with other people she's always analyzing other people and herself and that's kind of the power she has is kind of reflective of that aspect of her character yeah i think that's a very well put analysis of that i didn't even think of that because you know that's exactly how anxiety paralyzes you you think of all these different ways things could go who's this person going to think about me or that person you know should i have done this should i have done that did i leave the stove on and it just you kind of go off on derailing Mm -hmm. and thought spirals because of all your anxiety whereas this is kind of like navigating the anxiety and moving through it as a power Mm. yeah and you can always reset as well the nature of the power is if you make a decision and it goes wrong you can reset and try the other path and sometimes actually both paths are bad but i guess that is partly how it counters the potential to be very anxious is that you're always able to figure out and make the best choice which in the real world you're not really able to make when in this you figure out what the least bad choices and then make that choice and you know what the consequences are going to be rather than always speculating but on the other hand your rewind power is relatively short term so you don't see the long-term consequences until obviously later in the story and yet your choices do impact the rest of the stories so you know the immediate consequences but not the long-term consequences initially and being cruel or kind to another character will affect your relationship and subsequently affect events in later episodes i won't spoil too much even though i'm telling the ending but there's some interesting things where actually being nice doesn't play out in a good way it's not always the obvious thing where if you antagonize someone it's not going to work out for you and if you're nice to them it will it's actually a lot more complicated than that and it's not always obvious how your choices will affect the story and you're not always rewarded for making ethical choices which i think is interesting because it feels like it's a game about ethics but it's not an obvious moral message of the week story of the week thing where if you make the right choices things will work out and if you make the bad choices you'll be punished it's a much more complex thing and you might choose to make what seems like so it's like a game about ethics in games rather than <laughs> ethics in games journalism yes uh let's not go there again this kind of choice-based storytelling is a particular capacity of games as distinct from other media so the choices aren't as pluralized as an open world game like skyrim or red dead redemption where you can just kind of wander yeah. off story and hunt or take various side quests just start shooting everybody in the old west yeah yeah or that it's a lot more tightly scripted but the kind of mix of being tightly scripted but also choice driven is quite effective so one issue with open world games like skyrim is that the non-player characters the npcs are often very thinly drawn they might have one or two lines that they just keep repeating on a continuous loop whereas the heavy scripting and kind of cinematic tone of a game like life is strange allows for more emotional complexity as we've been discussing yeah the dialogue trees are much more much more simple 
Yeah, and again, it's very goal-driven. Like, there is a lot of goal-driven interactions in Life is Strange, but in a game like Skyrim, it's all of your interactions really are goal-driven, and none of it is really ever just about fleshing out the side characters. You're just like, I'm interacting with you so that I can get a mission quest and carry that out. You won't get the kind of finding out that this person has another side to them well i mean it does happen sometimes but i would say there's kind of benefits both ways so one path the open world games allows you to kind of explore this huge complex world where you've got a whole landscape and an interlocking society and it kind of does the big picture well and then you can do your own thing within that big picture whereas something like life is strange a more cinematic game it's kind of more micro level but you get more complexity at that micro level you sort of learn a lot more about the other characters and your relationships with them so yeah I think as I say there's strengths both ways and I've heard people criticise Life is Strange on the terms of open world games essentially criticise it for not being an open world game and I think ultimately it's just a different genre and a different kind of storytelling. Well they are kind of boxing you in so that the narrative can only take certain paths and certain endings and possibilities Yeah. Yeah but again it has benefits to it you know it's like potentially like criticizing a horror film for being a horror film or an action film for being an action film you know this is not an open world game it's a kind of point and click adventure story or you know more accurately now an interactive drama or a kind of cinematic choice driven game boy could you imagine if somebody made an open world game that was a hybrid of an open world game and a game like this i think that would be pretty cool or, I mean, an open-world game in the Life is Strange universe would be quite odd. Mm. Like, so obviously you you have the, the lead who has superpowers, but the world is a lot more mundane. Open-world games are things mm. like the Wild West or the kind of imagined quasi-medieval world of Skyrim, whereas open-world Life is Strange would just be our world. So I guess that could be interesting in itself, mm. but uh, yeah. And there are other recent games with a similar of scripting and choice like the horror games Until Dawn and Cthulhu which are kind of the horror games that have a contingent kind of ending but neither of those games have the emotional or philosophical depth of the, their series so honestly Man of Medan which recently came out from the makers of Until Dawn it just made me appreciate how much better Life is Strange utilizes similar mechanics and the differences I keep emphasizing this but it's the characters so I didn't care about any of the people in Man of Medan so why would I care about the various narrative paths you know there's multiple endings and there's possibility of people dying or or living but I don't care about these people so why does that matter I don't think I don't think character driven stories work if the characters are not interesting yeah. yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, Until Dawn and Man of Medan, the genre pieces more so, like, they're quite straight horror. So it might make a difference whether you find them scary or the atmosphere effective. But, you know, it's similar mechanics, and those mechanics depend on characters making choices and the consequences of those choices, not only for them, but other characters. That is interesting set of mechanics, but I think it's much stronger when you have strong characters. But even in Man of Medan, these sorts of mechanics, they are interesting as a kind of narrative execution of chaos theory or the butterfly effect and both the Until Dawn and Man of Medan games and Life is Strange visually thematize that with butterflies so Until Dawn uses a kind of butterfly visual just like Life is Strange does 
That is true. Yeah, so... Uh, Max uh, finds a way. Yes. Uh, and Chloe, being a closet nerd, points it out herself. She points out that this is butterfly effect in action. It's not a subtle game by any means. And again, there's this nice... And it's very similar to that movie, too, that Ashton Kutcher starred in. Yes, the butterfly effect, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I won't spoil this, but the climax of episode three leading through to the the question of resetting at the beginning of episode four, that's very butterfly effect for the movie. Like, it's a very similar kind of exploration of, of different possible life paths. And I think a little bit less cynical, like the butterfly effect, the movie feels a bit nihilistic with how it deals with those possible paths, whereas in this, I think it's a much more compassionate yeah. Of, of how these things can play out. There's a motif of a blue butterfly, which clearly represents both Chloe with her blue hair and the butterfly effect. And personally, I watch a lot of YouTube playthroughs of various games, but in the case of Life is Strange, I always prefer to play the games unspoiled first, and apologies, Derek, I'm having to spoil you for these <laughs> reviews. But, I mean, it's fascinating to make your own choices. I'm only on the first episode of of, of uh, Before the Storm. Yeah. yeah, well, you're in for good stuff, and I'm only talking about the big beats. There's still a lot of a lot of stuff you'll find out, obviously. Hard feels already. Yeah, I mean, I literally I cry in every episode of Before the Storm. Like the first Life is Strange is cumulative, where in the first few episodes yeah. I find it compelling and interesting but it's not like emotionally shattering and then by the end of episode four it's emotionally shattering and then basically from then on the entire series is just relentless like the entirety of before the storm and the sequel i'm just like weeping half of the time they just like once they get into the you know the tragedy they don't let up with it so have some tissues to play these games personally i actually find that kind of stuff cathartic and satisfying it's like why people watch weepies you know romantic weepies because it's a release of emotion it's a catharsis i do prefer to play the games unspoiled because it's pretty fascinating to make your own choices to see how they play out and then compare them with other players uh, on youtube and elsewhere that's the interesting thing about the game is to make your choices and then see the other possible paths and that's where the mechanics and the and the drama kind of interact well, the only reason why I'm not upset with you for robbing me of that experience mm. is because I tend to have a, a, a short-term memory mm. that tends to reset like a goldfish. Yeah. And I will probably be playing this all over again and yeah. not remember. Yeah, that's lucky. I've had that as well. I've watched things and then realized just as they were happening that I was spoiled for them and I'd just forgotten. There's also, in terms of the mechanics, I think, as I say, the choice mechanics is really where the drama and the technical aspects kind of mesh together really well. Whereas there are other points where the mechanics, to me, feel like they're getting in the way of the drama. So there are some puzzles and fetch quests which require your rewind power, but they don't really add anything to the story and to me they just feel like getting through a bit of gaminess to get back to the story and on the, those cases I tend to look the puzzles up on YouTube because I just didn't yeah. care uh, and I just wanted to get through that part of the game 
and you know I've been replaying the Portal games recently and those are examples of how to make puzzles interesting whereas I find the the environmental puzzles in Life is Strange are largely as I say they just feel like a barrier to the story but they're still pretty straightforward once you know what the fix is you can usually do it in about 30 seconds and there's no grind to build up skills or points or what have you you don't really have to defeat any enemies or well you kind of do but there's no combat sequences so it's a lot more straightforward if you're casual and you just want a kind of a story and you're not into spending hours and hours grinding with games which some people enjoy but and fighting bosses yeah yeah like Bloodborne seems amazing aesthetically but I could not be bothered with those kind of punishing bosses some people enjoy that stuff but yeah it's just not, not really my thing so these are these are much more straightforward games and yeah it's more it's essentially more story driven I did my time with Devil May Cry I'm not I'm not even gonna get into Bloodborne Alien Isolation was, uh, I played through all of that because it's just such a beautiful rendition of the Alien universe, but that was punishing and, you know, you can expect to die many times. But in that case, I just found the atmosphere so effective that I forced myself through it. But it's generally not my thing, kind of competitive or combat-based games. So this is more story-driven, and despite the variations in the narrative path, the game concludes with a pretty simple binary choice and that that is something it's been criticized for. Arguably it doesn't quite pay off on the radical potential of the concept because your previous choices don't really condition that final choice. It comes down to this one binary regardless of what you've done up until then. And that's kind of, I mean again, it's a difficult with a heavily scripted game to do it in any other way. Well yeah, that's what I mean. They're boxing you in, you know, so that it kind of streamlines it and dovetails it towards a set but like again binary ending but maybe there's a couple different endings you can have but like they have to find a way to i guess nerf that world and streamline it so that you can only make those certain choices i mean life is strange too i'll talk about this down the line but Life is Strange 2 has a much more pluralized ending, so it has seven possible endings that are conditioned not only by the choices you make at the end, but also by the choices you made previously, and by the choices other characters make at the end, conditioned by previous developments. So that, finally, I feel like Life is Strange 2 pays off on the mechanics a lot more. There's kind of four core endings and seven possible, if you include the variations on the kind of core endings, whereas Life the strange two really comes down to two endings but it is as choices go it's a doozy so your powers everyone kind of predicted this or a lot of people did your powers have resulted in the storm that will destroy the town apparently that's chaos theory again the rules and the mechanics aren't really that fleshed out but the only way to save the town is to reset the timeline so this means letting chloe die because the first use of your power was saving her life so your choice is to sacrifice the town or sacrifice chloe it's a choice that's been dubbed bay or bay after the town 
friend's name Arcadia Bay and your bay with an E, Chloe. In terms of ethical philosophy, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and the game very much guides you towards sacrificing Chloe, but fuck that. I went full supervillain and sacrificed the town. Their love was just too powerful and too gay for me to sacrifice it. So I went against my principles and saved Chloe. I was just thinking too, and I kind of thought of this when I got to this point in the game, was that, okay, if the chaos theory is, this is all pulling out from all the time travel, why did the one, one more time travel going back to reset the timeline, why did that have a, a negligible effect and just add more chaos to the chaos vortex. Why, how could you reset the timeline then? I agree, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but the reason it works is because it's your first use of the power, you know? So any other decision, you'd still just be messing with the timeline more. Whereas with that, you're going back to your first use of the power and not using your power. So it kind of works in yeah. a way that none of the yeah. logic of the game really mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense, if you think about it. Well, yeah, because you know there was another part in the game that I wondered about too, that I kind of was proven correct on towards the end. I had the theory that when she jumps in and out of the timelines, it's not unlike what has happened on Rick and Morty and other shows with multiverses. When she leaves, it's almost like the... It dissolves. Yeah. It dissolves, but also the her from that point that she left at is there. It's like she's quantum leaping into her, her past selves, basically, or herself at the same time. And so she's creating this basically an unstable multiverse. Yeah, because that's why she said that when I wake up back then, I'm not going to remember any of this. So that means that's a Max who's traveling forward on Time's Arrow that has no awareness of her current time travel that she just did. So therefore, the different Maxes are different planes of, of understanding and comprehension of what's going on at different times. So like when she goes inside of a picture and she, you know, when she, you know, does those kind of rewinds. Uh, when she went back to her childhood, her childhood self, when she came back to the future, her childhood self grew up in the past, and then she just arrived in the present of that. You know? Yeah, yeah, there's a whole timeline that happens that we don't see where, for example, she's become friends with the Vortex Club. Like, she's actually a completely different person in that timeline, and there's all this stuff that's happened. Yeah, it's like the end to go back to the future. You know, the, the lifeline was different, but they're the person that returned from the earlier point. That's where time travel gets gets really crazy. The important thing, I think, is that it's, it's all character-driven. So the first thing is you want to save your childhood friend's life, and so you manifest this power in order to basically bend the timeline, bend time space around your desire to save her, which is very romantic by the way. And then the rest of the game is about you repeatedly saving Chloe. And I mean that's also tied in with Max's guilt that she abandoned Chloe. So she keeps having to save Chloe. And then that's what the final choice is about. When she manifests the new ability to go further back in time through the photo, that's about her wanting to go back to when Chloe was 
abandoned and ensure it didn't happen. So she develops this new power because she has this new, even greater desire to not mm -hmm. just save her life, but save their person and save her from trauma. And then at the end, your choice is whether to save Chloe or whether to accept that essentially the universe is against Chloe. They're, at this point, also, if they continue having saved Chloe, it seems like it's going to be an unstable universe. I mean, in the comics, Max makes a decision after saving Chloe to never use her powers again, which I think is the only way that ending could make sense. If it stabilizes by her making that choice and then no longer using her power. So it's character driven. Yeah, so in that way, all the people didn't die by doing it. If, if you can pull that off, then that's just as ethical a decision as saving the whole town. The storm still happens in the comic book version, although not as many people die as it might seem. Uh, there are people who survive it. But no, the storm still happens. The point is, she doesn't continue to use her powers, so hopefully the universe stabilizes, except there's a lot of other crazy stuff in the comics which I won't go into because it's spoilery. Well, it's not like she knew the rules of time travel before she started doing it. So I would, I would say the ethics only kick in for her once it comes down to the binary choice. And to quote Eurogamer's Aoife, I don't want to choose wisely, I want to choose Chloe. Although unlike us, Aoife chose to sacrifice Chloe. Sadly, the ending where you sacrifice the town is a bit cheaper and a bit less developed than the ending where you sacrifice Chloe. So saving her is still my preferred choice. But the execution of the sacrifice Chloe ending is a lot stronger. And the devs explain that they ran out of money, but it does seem like they put priority on the preferred ending, which the game has basically been building towards. And crucially, Chloe actually wants you to sacrifice her to save her family, and that's a big development because honestly, she's she, I love Chloe, but she's been pretty selfish generally throughout the games. Yes, yeah, she was prickly to get close to and used to and favor as a character, and then you appreciate, oh, fuck it, we're bringing her back because she just keeps dying. I'm not happy with sacrificing her after all of that. But it is important that she, at the end, she actually makes this selfless decision that she thinks you should save her family. Even despite all of her issues with the town and with the way she's been treated, she makes this selfless decision. So in that sense, she gives you permission. She even says it's what you should do, but it's still not an easy choice. But it is a good arc for her character. and. I think it shows uh, growth. I'm going to get a Coke. Do you want one? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Thanks, Bay. I was pretty glad you made the same choice as me, the gay choice. Uh, at the end of each episode, you find out how your choices stack up relative to other players, and the divide with this final choice is roughly 50-50. And this fairly even split on the climactic choices runs through all three games, showing they are genuine ethical quandaries. You are my number one priority now. You are all that matters to me. I know. You proved that over and over again. Even though I don't deserve it. I'm so selfish. Not like my mom. Look what she had to give up and live through. And she did. She deserves so much more than to be killed by a storm in a fucking diner. Even my... My stepfather... Deserves her alive. 
there's so many more people in Arcadia Bay who should live. Way more than me. Don't say that. I won't trade you. Now for the prequel, Life is Strange Before the Storm, released in 2017. This release was met with some trepidation, partly because it was handed over to a different production team, Deck Nine, rather than Don't Not. The writing staff also changed, with Zach Garris taking over as head writer, but this turned out to be a solid entry, well received by fans and critics, retaining the cinematic tone and character-driven storytelling of the original. My biggest problem with it is that the production team scabbed on an actor's strike. So this strike went over 2016 to 2017. It was the longest ever for actors union SAG-AFTRA. And as with the writer's strike before it, actors were mainly striking for residuals, which are bonus payments based on sales. A right which has been undermined for both actors and writers as media has gone digital. Ashley Birch, who plays Chloe in the first game, was on strike and she was replaced by Rihanna DeVries, although Birch still consulted and wrote for the game because, you know, when you're on strike for one thing, you can work on another thing. I wish I knew that about this, uh, that they scabbed on this game because otherwise I don't think I would have bought the special edition of this but i i only found it because i couldn't find the digital copy or anything but i found it really cheap online and uh in the box form and they had all the, the stuff in it i also only found out after the fact and although devries does turn in an effective performance she's actually very good the fact remains that birch was treated as disposable after winning award recognition for the first game so speaking to kotaku birch said i'm pretty heartbroken it feels sort of like you were forced to put your kid up for adoption so obviously she's quite connected to the character and that does come through in her performance okay that shit's getting louder now yeah god damn it bob <laughs> um just get head get headphones so um see another example of the generally poor labor practices in the games industry even among smaller devs I found all this out after buying the game and might have reconsidered buying in that light, but of course there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. If you want to buy games, you'll be buying games from companies with shitty labour practices pretty universally, and the solution is to boost unionisation efforts in the industry, like Game Workers Unite or SAG-AFTRA. It'd be nice to get someone on the show at some point who's involved in these unionisation efforts in the industry. The prequel was less successful in terms of awards than the original, though like the first game, it won Game of the Year from Games for Change, and this Wokeness award is kind of dubious given the, the devs' labour practices, but it is a solid game. It's different from the first in two obvious ways, so there's the absence of Max and there's the absence of the time travel mechanic. Chloe takes over the lead role during the period in her life when Max was nowhere to be seen. Instead of time travel, Chloe oddly has a backtalk mechanic, a time challenge where she uses dialogue trees to get her desired result out of people. 
It's Jeff Winger's superpower. Yes, true, but more aggressive. She kind of insults people a lot, whereas Jeff kind of plays to people's narcissism or their values, manipulates their values. With these timed backtalk challenges, you're put on the spot to make the right call in the moment, whereas Max could always rewind time to fix bad calls. So it's quite a contrast to being in the moment with Chloe. And like in the first game, the emotional core is intense relationships between teens. In this case, Chloe and Rachel Amber. So in the first game, Rachel was simply an object of mystery. So this is kind of like Fire Walk with Me to the first game's Twin Peaks Season 1, showing the human behind the mystery, who's brought to life by Kylie Brown, and it's a very effective performance. You really get the sense of the charisma of Chloe and why people are attracted to her, uh, and Right from the first episode, you can choose whether to pursue a romantic relationship with Amber, and there are some truly beautiful gay moments if you do, particularly in the second episode. Of course, there's a debate in fandom over Amber Price or Pricefield, that is, shipping Chloe with either Max from the original or Rachel from the prequel. My take, as usual, is why not both, especially given Max and Rachel knew Chloe at different points in her life. They don't really have to be in conflict. But crucially, it retains the core element that runs through all three games as characters come and go, which is the choice mechanic. So again, you have choices in various situations, and those choices have consequences. It's a shorter game, and being a prequel, you can't influence the narrative on the scale you can in the first and last games because the ending is pretty much predetermined but the choice mechanic is still used effectively on a smaller scale at key turning points you only have bad choices so in the last episode you're confronted with the ethical question of whether it's okay to lie to protect a loved one personally my view is firmly that people should know the truth however difficult but again the split of players was about 50 50 The soundtrack was lovely as usual, whereas the first game had a range of indie artists, the prequel soundtrack is entirely composed by English group Daughter. They produced some emotionally wrenching work, my personal favourite being the powerful Burn It Down from the final episode. And Max returns in the bonus episode Farewell, which broke me. One nice Easter egg and farewell yeah. is a choose-your-own-adventure story written by Chloe and Max as kids. This is kind of the text-based equivalent of in-game choice mechanics. So maybe people adapting the series for other mediums could take a cue from that. It always seems odd to me to write something like the comic, which kind of can't really do the choice mechanic, which is such a core appeal of the series. Yeah, it has to be based on specific endings, yeah. Yeah, and not just that, taking off from those endings, but then you can't make any choices down the line. Like, it's it's back to, mm-hmm. you know, the passive nature of most storytelling outside of games. Whereas choose-your-own-adventure books for adults are actually a thing that exists, and that seems like it would be a better way to adapt yeah. the series for another medium, I think. Overall, it's an effective prequel that adds emotional weight to the original. A kind of a, a shorter little piece that just fleshes out the emotional background of the first game. 
And I think that's probably the right way to do a prequel, even though, you know, when you have a set, finished, fixed ending, it doesn't have to be a limitation. Yeah. There's not really any retcons, which is nice. All it does is it gives you more of an emotional sense of who these people are, how they became who they are in yeah. the first game as well. I've known people who said they'd play before the storm first, which I think is the wrong choice. Like, yes, it's chronologically set before. Because it's more context to to what happened in the first game. I like those kinds of prequels better than what's that retcon. Yeah, and you won't get the emotional significance of a lot of what happens in Before the Storm unless you played the first game. It's almost like an epilogue in a way to the first game. 60 degrees every night, you and me on the Santa Monica Pier, gorging on food truck food, smoking up, looking at the moon shining on the lake. And a beautiful blonde man will sit next to us and smile at you. Yeah, okay. He'll say, I like your eyes. And I'll say, back off. She's with me. You're full of shit. <laughs> Finally, on to Life is Strange 2, which wrapped up in December of last year. So the sequel saw the original devs and writers taking over again, and again there'll be heavy spoilers in this review. Honestly, I loved the first two, but this is an improvement in a number of ways. The kinks have largely been ironed out while still playing to the series strength of character-driven storytelling. The sequel takes the risk of moving on from popular characters Chloe and Max, and the devs explained that they didn't have any more to say about Chloe and Max, though others could continue their story. Personally, I think finite stories are often more powerful than ones that are endlessly renewed for the sake of cashing in, as you see, for example, with network TV or various franchises that get revived multiple times and the decision not to pander to the fans really paid off and just telling a new story in the same universe there's a short free game called captain spirit which indirectly sets the sequel up with a backstory for chris erickson a nine-year-old boy who has a brief but significant cameo in the sequel for a free game captain spirit is quite something an affecting character-based vignette with lovely cinematography lots of mini games and easter eggs and the mini games are more fun than the puzzles and the main entries because you're seeing the world through the eyes of an imaginative kid so there's a reason for these mini games Again, it's imaginative and it's character-based, rather than just being puzzles for the sake of puzzles, like you sometimes get in the first game. The main game, Life is Strange 2, focuses on two Latino brothers. It's in theaters now, coming this summer. Two brothers. Sean Diaz, played by Gonzalo Martin, and Daniel Diaz, played by Roman Dean George. You play as older brother Sean. One subtle character-based change is the move to a more poppy electronic soundtrack, representing the taste of the new lead. Though acoustic artists like Sufjan Stevens still turn up, so there's still a bit of that acoustic indie sound. The sequel does return to the more magical realist or soft sci-fi elements of the first game, as the younger brother Daniel has psychokinetic abilities. When a cop kills his father, 
He blacks out and blasts the entire block apart, Magneto style, killing the cop in the process. You spend the rest of the series on the run, heading to Mexico where the Diaz family hails from originally. This setting on the road is influenced both by road movies and by the work of Jack Kerouac, who was also name dropped in the first game. Life is Strange 2 also has more male role models than the first two, including lead Sean, who matures over the course of the game, and Esteban, their sweetheart of a dad. The first game generally the men were shitty in one way or another and in this you kind of get more images of what people like to call positive masculinity. Daniel though is a little shit but that's kids his age, it's perfectly in character and it's exacerbated by his newfound power. You know, give a kid Magneto-like abilities and that probably are going to turn into a bit of a little shit. But the decision to take the superpowers out of the hands of the player and the lead is one of many bold moves. I think it's brilliant because the game, instead of being about your superpowers, is all about how you influence your younger brother in using his powers. At the beginning, he has no conscious control over them, and you have to coach him on using his powers, which is connected to kind of teaching him ethics, whether by modeling good behavior or by setting rules. So co-writer Christian Devine explained, quote, the game's about education. You know, it's about teaching. I mean, I have an older brother, the exact same age difference between Sean and Daniel. So if you have siblings, you all know what it's like to have a little sibling chasing you. I know that I was the obnoxious sibling to my older brother, like, hey Scott, what are you doing when his friends are out? So that's a universal. We all understand that sense of sibling rivalry or, you know, companionship. And so this game is going to be about Sean having to teach Daniel. And of course, your choices and actions will determine Daniel's behavior in the narrative. Along with these character-based themes, the sequel also deals more broadly with racism in the USA, from killer cops to vigilantes. You're the reason we need to build that wall. Detractors accuse the game of being didactic or clumsy, but the reality is people do talk like that. It's just jarring, especially if you haven't experienced it. Unlike the first game, there's no single villain. There's a range of people persecuting and exploiting the brothers, which is both a plausible depiction of racism and enough of a conflict to keep driving the narrative. Like in the previous games, you have the option of pursuing a gay relationship. Usually I'd lean into the gay on principle, but sadly in this case the male love interest was a total douche, so for once in my life I chose the straight option. Detractors allege that Life is Strange 2 didn't give players real choices. This is understandable. With all the cinematic cutscenes, it does feel like it's railroading, but there's more to Life is Strange 2 than first appears. So the story starts pretty narrow, but it keeps branching out. The episodes routinely have multiple endings, and the final episode again has seven possible endings, with minor variations on four main endings, all conditioned by your choices up to that point. Unlike the first game, which expanded and then ultimately contracted to one binary choice, we have multiple branches that keep expanding to the end, like a tree. You don't really know how your choices impacted the story until after the fact. This also gives the series a lot of replay value. 
experimenting with different paths and metagaming. Your power isn't always in making the big obvious choices, it's the ripple effects particularly how you influence Daniel as a younger brother. Choices like whether to steal when you're hungry, whether to reveal yourself by helping someone out, whether to play a prank on an authority figure who's being an ass, all add up to influence your brother's behavior. And he is the one with the superpower. So ultimately, you're guiding your brother's development of an ethical philosophy. I made this point in a piece on episode two of the game, titled Ethical Philosophy in Life is Strange and published on my fandom blog, which will link in the description. So, quote, Life is Strange 2 has moved away from a protagonist with a superpower to a protagonist with responsibility for a child with a superpower, making for an ethically complex experience. With great responsibility comes great power. The implications of this first come to a head in episode 2, where the choices you make in interacting with Daniel determine the ending. In a nice deviation from previous Life is Strange installments, you have no choices at the climax, rather the climax is determined by your previous interactions with Daniel. At the outset of the episode, you give Daniel a set of rules for using the power, primarily that he should hide the truth, and the episode title is Rules. Now, if you'll forgive a brief digression, I believe this can best be understood in terms of deontological versus consequentialist ethics. In short, deontology is about rules, consequentialism is about consequences. For example, the rule, thou shalt not kill. A deontologist might hold that this is absolute. A consequentialist might hold that it depends on the context. For example, do you kill a serial killer to prevent more deaths? A deontologist might say no, thou shalt not kill. A consequentialist might say yes, we should prevent the impact on other people. In the case of the game, Sean has established a set of rules which seem reasonable in themselves and probably best for protecting Daniel from himself. Those are 1. Hide your power. 2. Never talk about it. 3. Run from danger. These rules are very quickly challenged by difficult circumstances where Daniel must break them to ensure the best outcome for everyone. This poses questions like, how do you teach ethics to a kid? If you set rules, is it good parenting or brothering to then immediately make exceptions? Is it better to teach kids to judge based on circumstances rather than fixed rules? And can you trust them to do that once you've set the guidance? Daniel also has free will, sort of. So while he will take your guidance, it's a question of setting norms. If you are too restrictive, he might rebel. He doesn't just do what you tell him to do. And in the climax of episode two, you can't directly determine his actions, but your previous actions will influence his. This is far from the first time the Life is Strange series has dealt with ethical questions, as well as the multiple micro-level ethical questions throughout the games. The climax of the original was essentially a version of the much-memed trolley problem. Do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one? However, deontology versus consequentialism strikes me as a more sophisticated and yet more obviously relevant question than the well-worn trolley problem. Follow the rules or do what seems right in the circumstances. Close quote. The climax of episode 2 has three possible endings. The climax of episode 2 is a cutscene, so on the surface it might not seem like you have a choice. 
but you realize in retrospect that the ending is determined by the decisions you made previously. Now we'll get into full-on spoiler territory. At the climax of the whole game in episode 5, you reach a police blockade at the border to Mexico. You can either tell Daniel to break through the blockade or turn yourselves in. So it might seem like a binary choice, but again, it branches in 4 to 7 possible directions depending how you count. Daniel decides whether to take your advice based on how you previously influenced him. The ending is determined by both of your choices interacting, not just yours or Daniel's. So the four endings essentially are, you tell him to break through the blockade and he does, you tell him and he doesn't, you tell him not to and he defies your advice, or you tell him not to and he decides to follow your advice. And that also doesn't mean that Daniel making the choice to go through or not go through is binary. Again, it splits in four directions. And then there's also variations based on previous choices you made, like romantic relationships are resolved in the ending sequences based on who you've shown an interest in in previous episodes. So yeah, it just keeps branching out as opposed to the first game. And personally, I didn't get my preferred ending, more like the second best. I tried to teach Daniel to be ethical, but I unintentionally taught him to be lawful, which isn't quite the same thing. When I chose to break through the police barrier, he refused and turned himself in. Fortunately, he is too young to go to jail and ended up under house arrest with his grandparents while Sean, or the player character, reaches Mexico. This isn't the darkest possible timeline but it is unfortunate the brothers are separated. The darkest timeline is where you choose to turn yourself in but an unlawful or chaotic Daniel refuses, recklessly charges through the border, you get shot and killed so he becomes an anime here lone wolf in Mexico. The other darkest timeline is where you choose to turn yourself in a lawful Daniel agrees and you spend years in jail. And the happiest ending is where you choose to break through the blockade, he's chaotic and agrees, so you end up together in Mexico. In other words, it's the unlawful ending, both for you as a character and for Daniel. So apparently the listeners crime does pay. Like in the first game, I played nice on the first playthrough and ruthless on replay. Frankly, the Life is Strange series is some of the greatest storytelling of the 21st century. They use the affordances of a still new medium to tell powerful stories in a new way. They are deeply flawed games, particularly the first, but they're also instant classics that are bound to be influential on the medium. Don't Nod's next game, Tell Me Why, will be the first major game with an openly trans lead. So these devs continue to blaze new trails in storytelling. Life is Strange 2 received critical acclaim, but a lukewarm reaction from many fans, and comparatively few awards compared to the first. It deservedly won Best Narrative Design at the French Pegasus Awards. It'll be interesting to see whether this entry continues the series' winning streak with Games for Change happening next month in July. And the only BAFTA for the game went to Gonzalo Martin for his powerful performance as Sean Diaz. You know that day? In Seattle? The date Dad was shot? I think about it every day. And 
that I would give anything to change what happened. But I can't. I'm sorry for my mistakes. I tried my best. I swear. Sean. But you were the one with the real power, and you know how to use it now. You're not a kid anymore. Yo! Uh, this is I sit down. Hold on, I'll deal with this. Ten more minutes, okay? Don Levy wants to use the room. Anyway, we're concluding with a report on how we got to be sitting next to each other in a chilly Antarctic base in June 2020 on Timeline Z3. Regular listeners will know it all started with the No Fate Project and their recruitment of us to fight the future. Feels self-important. Why do you think they recruited two small-time podcasters? What skills do we bring? Do they need us to analyze the semiotics of the coming zombie plague? Ours is not to reason why. Ours but to do and die. We'll do and live, hopefully. Anyway, listeners, short recap. Last time, somebody who appeared to be my future self showed up to take me to Antarctica. I say appeared because it turned out he was an evil clone sent by Professor Don Levy to track me. Yeah, Don Levy's only half on our side. He's developing the cure to sell it to the highest bidder. We want to socialize it. This isn't just a moral choice. It's the only way humanity will survive the red-brown zombie plague. Don Levy knows we're working against him, so he just wanted to lock us up and throw away the key, literally. While Ani's clone was tricking them in Melbourne, my clone was pulling the same shit in Florida. And I ended up here. A pretty clever way to get us to voluntarily comply, sending ourselves. Turns out time travel is still limited to sending messages back not people so these weren't time travelers yeah if this clarifies anything time travel in the real world is like a christmas carol so we get visions of the future but don't travel physically and we can only change the present to change the future or like john carpenter's prince of darkness so this looks like tachyons are a real phenomenon too i don't think this is clarifying anything for the listeners well, they have a right to know. If we fail, someone has to follow in our trail. And some trail it is, dear listeners. We got on private jets chartered by the No Fate Project. Ani went via Christchurch, I went via Argentina. And it was like we were Indiana Jones with the red lines on those maps. And it feels wrong in this time of pandemic lockdowns to be globetrotting, but Antarctica is the only continent not to have COVID-19. And instead of blocking all visitors, they just screamed for flu-like symptoms. The flight was pretty luxe, nicer than my bed, so at least I got some sleep. The project was pretty well funded until recently. Now some of the more lucrative funding is drying up since they refused to sign any deals giving US or Big Pharma exclusive patents. They're still being mostly funded by the New Zealand government and the secretive Nathaniel Derby Pickman Foundation over at Miskatonic University. Anyway, we uh, converged on Dire Station and met in person for the first time, but it was a little spoiled by our clones trying to lock us in steel cages Don Levy uh, keeps in his basement. 
Unfortunately, we won that fight. Who won that fight? Credit where it's due. I couldn't have done it without you, babe. The moral support and supervision. Anyway, my tiger claw did come in handy. Finish him. Fatality. One hand each. The fight was over in a few seconds, but it was psychologically scarring for all concerned. Yeah, honestly it was disconcerting watching you use your most ruthless move on me, but thank you for protecting me. Uh, me, me. Yeah, how do you think I felt using it on myself? I mean, the other myself. Still, I got sympathy pains. Sorry. Anything I can do to help with that? Not in front of the kids. Uh, anyway, Don Levy was terrified, but we couldn't really take him out since he's the one developing a cure. So we reached a truce. Which definitely will not last. Do you think he listens to this podcast? Should we be saying this stuff openly? Also, he's kind of staring at us right now. The glass is soundproof, he can't hear us. He's just been standing there for ten minutes. Yeah, it's unsettling, but we're all getting the broadcast from the future. We all know what's coming. Don Levy develops the cure in mid-September. Actually, if we're in touch with future Don Levy, why can't he just share the formula? Too paranoid. Plus, he wants to preserve the timeline rather than change it. He's even keeping it from his past self, apparently. Uh, I overhear them arguing. It's quite disturbing. Right. I don't, if he wants to preserve the timeline, he probably shouldn't be communicating with us at all. What a whack job. And I'm allowed to say that as a diagnosed whack job. Anyway, once the cure is developed, it's just a matter of who has the most firepower, really. Well, I'm not sure my tiger claw is going to be enough. He's probably developing killer robots or mice with lasers. Will win. We have to. Well, in the meantime, we've joined the research team doing mostly data entry. We've got software doing content analysis of cataloging red ground pollution of the meme pool. Current trends indicate comorbidity of COVID-19 and the nascent RBZ plague. The No Fate Project is also collaborating with Miskatonic University on Monitoring ice sheets melts from climate change, uh, ancient ice core samples, adapting krill to end world hunger, oh that's going to be tasty, uh, studying penguin evolution and the effect of climate change on arctic penguin populations, searching for extraterrestrial intelligence in collaboration with NASA, and collecting extremophile microbes. Overall, the mission statement is about reversing the sixth mass extinction, the Anthropocene extinction. Well, that's what the paperwork says, but I'm getting the impression it's a cover for Don Levy's various evil schemes. They're technologically innovative evil schemes, at least. I can see why they tolerate the crank. Anyway, we got here just in time for winter, which means we can't leave for a few months due to weather conditions. So now we're working for the alcoholic mad scientist. He doesn't seem like good boss material. There are no good bosses. But hopefully he's intimidated enough by Derek to at least follow basic labor laws. Yeah, this wobbly knows how to make a grown man weep. As graphically demonstrated to Don Levy already, direct action gets the goods. 
as it were. Yes. Anyway, there's a silver lining to all this nonsense. Well, one, we're getting paid, but two, we got private quarters together. Bunk beds, but still. And speaking of homophilia, today marks the third Pride celebrated in Antarctica, and they say it's important to mark the time out here. Uh, We joined the small contingent with the pansexual flag, and word is around this station that Don Lovey is on the down low, and Dr. Bob is low-key homophobic. Go figure. Fuck that guy. (laughs) Anyway, that brings us up to date, and Don Levy's looking impatient out there. Yeah, that's right. We're talking about you, dude. So, should we wrap this up and go get warm? Subtle. I'll just uh, do the begging bit. Well, dear listeners, the No Fate Project may be raking in decent cash, but Don Levy looks set to hoard it for his own purposes. So if you want to help our fight to socialize the cure and you can reasonably spare some cash, please set up a monthly contribution to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Jetpack 1917. Also, a word from our sponsors. If you're a good person, consider donating to the Nanoloan Group at nanoloans.org. The Nanoloan Group offers loans to third world women, ensuring a life of debt. The Nanoloan philosophy is that there's nothing more empowering than debt. If we were to simply give people money, it would rob them of agency, whereas obligation towards rich people ensures a healthy sense of self-sufficiency. With every Nanoloan comes an implant of nanobots, ensuring lifelong compliance. Let's indebt the world together. If you donate at nanoloans.org slash jetpack, we'll get kickbacks. It's hard out here for a podcaster. On a more serious fourth wall breaking note, our podcast platform is offering us sponsorships, so please do consider helping us resist that temptation. Until capitalism is done, subscription models are the best way of paying for content. Yeah, and we're not going to turn away funds from Bill Gates or George Soros at this point. Anyone have their numbers? Finally, just letting regular listeners know, from now on, we're going out on the last Saturday of every month. So wash your damn hands and we'll see you in the future. God damn it, Don Libby, you got the room. Get back to your scheming. Okay, okay, we're off shift. I don't care if you gave the penguins Gavapenton good night. You have seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? We once laughed at the horseless carriage, the aeroplane, the telephone, the electric light, the vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh in outer space. God help us in the future. 